It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Howdy doody. Howdy doody. Who said howdy doody? Was there a puppet called Howdy Doody? Possibly. How are you? I'm I'm well. I uh, always enjoy a good edism, and we can add Howdy Doody to the list. How are you? Because you're, you're you're very busy. We should just explain to people you'll be uh, um, coming and going on today's episode because you you were tackling the energy crisis. So I, I take it you're you're pretty busy. I'm pretty busy. A cop is approaching. Of course. So the normal recovery from low body conference didn't, didn't really have much process of recovery. Um, I didn't get the conference. Normally, there's conference flu. I didn't know you know about conference flu. No, I didn't. Flu. Well, it speaks speaks well of your immune system. Uh, all that cold water swimming. Uh, yeah, and the, the the temperature is dropping. You'll be interested to hear. For it's fourteen. So the 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 socks and gloves are in a. I seem to have lost my hat while swimming. Um, but do do we need to send divers in? Actually, I've got a story to tell you about that, which is that I met the chair of the publishing company of outdoor swimmer magazine i was doing a book event in henley and i met the chair of of the publishing company of outdoor swimmer magazine which it's a little known fact began life it's been going about 10 years it began life as a magazine called h2 open ah which the nice man who's the publisher said to me made it sound like a magazine about chemistry uh so they changed the name i need to ask did the publisher of outdoor swimming magazine yes offer you a centerfold yes well i think front page actually front page and then i think a pull-out poster of you in the aforementioned swimming gear there is a dilemma isn't it which is how do you pose for a swimming magazine in a suit i'd say a swimsuit a wetsuit Oh, a swimsuit. I'll go modest, I think. Loosely on this subject, I I saw something in the news and I'm reluctant to bring it up in case it affects your mood. Okay, go on. I think this might sting at first, but we'll we'll get into it and it's going to be okay, right? I saw this on the website of the Doncaster Free Press. It says, Doncaster North MP named as the UK's second least sexy politician behind only Conservative Health Minister Sajid Javid. Before we go any further, I just want to say this exit poll looks wrong to me. It it carries on. It says it was a dramatic fall from grace for Mr Miliband, who was voted among the most sexy, that's most sexy, Ed, when the poll was carried out last year. Well, I sort of vaguely remember that. Yes, I think we talked about it. Jeff, I think it shows... You just can't trust the polls. I, I agree. And, and do you want to know uh, who, who this survey was conducted by? IllicitEncounters.com, the UK's leading dating website for married people. So th- this is what adulterers think of you, Ed. I'm basically falling down the charts with the adulterers is what you're telling me. I think they find your good virtue. I, I think they find that unattractive. I think you should ultimately be complimented. I mean, I just wonder what poor Sajid Javid has done to offend the adulterers. <laughs> Right, should we say what we're saying on this saying on the saying on this? We should. 
This week, we're talking about retrofitting our homes. Britain has some of the oldest and least energy efficient housing in Europe, leaving people across the country with high bills and cold homes. And it's bad for our carbon emissions too. Millions of homes in the UK need upgrading and a national mission to retrofit them with high quality insulation and zero carbon heating could support hundreds of thousands of jobs while reducing emissions and helping us reach our climate goals. We're going to be talking to Josh Emden from the think tank IPPR about the many benefits of investing in a home retrofit program and what government needs to do. And then to Anika Kelly from Carbon Co-op in Manchester about why they're promoting a people-powered approach to retrofit and what that could look like in practice. And then our cheerful person, is, it's like opening a bottle of optimism. It's Matt Woodhead, who is writer and director of Who Cares, which is a play about young carers. It's currently touring the country. What's your reason to be cheerful? Well, my reason to be cheerful, maybe I'll even do two, actually. Oh, Well, I was at Parkrun on Saturday, and well, actually three. Wow. Um, I was at Parkrun on Saturday, and... Uh, and if one of the very nice volunteers there shouted out to me, was it a personal best today? Because I listened to the podcast. It wasn't, actually. But then also, somebody in my office sent me a, um, a tweet from somebody, uh, which I thought was really rather amusing, uh, which said this. Well, it's Jack's microblog on Twitter. Forced myself to do park run, hung over, only to be beaten by... Ed Miliband says in capital letters, I'm never going to recover from this physically or socially. <laughs> I remember once coming third in a race of four people on sports day and that person never recovered socially after being beaten in a race by me. How did you manage that? I don't know. It was it was just one of those weird, uh, weird things, you know, like when a superpower descends on someone out of nowhere. And my other reason to be cheerful, which will appeal to a small section of this, of our listenership, is that the Red Sox beat the Yankees in the wildcard game. If you need to know more, do send me an email. <laughs> and you will get a long, blow-by-blow, blow, boring, 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 overly detailed email back in response. Yeah. Although my children are interested, so that sort of satisfies. Do you trust your own judgment on how interested your children are? <laughs> They've got the baseball bug. Okay. What's your reason to be cheerful? Well... My reason to be cheerful is that my wife is on tour at the moment, oh. which I'm not, not saying that because I like being home alone but it's it's great it's her first uk tour and i would love it if any of, of the listeners to our podcast if she's coming to a town near you and she's playing loads of towns and cities so she probably will be i'd love it if you went to see her she's called sarah Barron. she's very funny it's uh, it was her hit show from edinburgh a couple of years ago go and see her she'll be great she's very funny and when she gets back from you being home alone which is not really alone because you're looking after Jean. yes uh is she going to get back to find sort of, is it going to be white, like that Yellow Pages advert? You know, yes, I've drawn of, a moustache on the Mona Lisa. Exactly. Yeah. We also, I think we can now sort of pull stumps and declare the final end of the vegan cheese making kit, can't we? Oh, yes, I forgot to mention this. So on Saturday night, I thought, do you know what I'm going to do tonight? I'm going to, Sarah's away on tour. I'm going to make the vegan cheese that Ed gave me. For my Many years birthday ago now. or Christmas, I forget which when, one. When, when I was in my 40s, yeah. <laughs> so I, I got it out on Saturday night of the, uh, the special place where I've been keeping it. In the toilet, yeah. It had expired. <sighs> so you obviously bought me a vegan... You, you probably got it in some clearance because it was near its expiry date. 
I don't think it was near its expiry date, Jeff. I just bought it many years ago. The thing is, though, the thing is, I don't believe those best before dates. I mean, you know, if you were really sort of, in, you know, in, in the circular economy, you'd think, oh, never mind. It's only vegan cheese. Well, what could possibly go wrong? I don't know. I mean, you, you wouldn't. Have you chucked it? Yeah, I didn't want to. Ri- I didn't want to take the risk. Right. So, I mean, the vegan cheese thing is just now. It's like that is we're closing the book on the vegan cheese thing. That's the last time it'll ever be mentioned. I will be honest with you. One of the big obstacles to as I'm vegetarian. Often think about um, going vegan. One of the big ob- obstacles to me is that I don't really think they've cracked vegan cheese yet. But maybe I could have been the man to do it. I mean, just not to put too fine a point on it. You, you'll never know. <laughs> I mean. I mean, shall I get... Okay, here's the thing. Christmas is not that far away. Shall I, shall I get you an in-date one for Christmas? Well, make sure it doesn't expire before 2025. I'll look for the expiry date. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, we are going to get a beginner's guide to retrofitting. We're, we're going to hear about what needs to be done and how it could be done by Josh Emden, who is Research Fellow at the IPPR Think Tank. Hello, Josh. Hi there. Thanks very much for having me. Well, thanks for coming on. Um, I, I feel like I'm moderately confident dropping the word retrofit into a conversation, but in actual fact, I've only got the vaguest idea it's something to do with boilers and insulation. So can can you give us this uh, this this beginner's guide, everything you wanted to know about retrofitting homes, but we're afraid to ask? What What is it and what does it involve? Yeah, sure. I think, I mean, those things are, are broadly right. I think Ultimately, the end goal is about improving the quality of of building materials in our home, making them more comfortable, more energy efficient um, and and lower carbon. And and that kind of involves two two parts. The first is is installing the right kind of insulation to suit your home, making sure that it becomes more comfortable, more energy efficient. um, And that lowers your energy usage and consequently that lowers your bills. That's the insulation part. And then the second part is replacing the gas boiler with, with a lower carbon heating solution. An example uh, which is going to be quite prominent in future is, is going to be a heat pump. And that's essentially a heat pump, it's, it's a little box on the side of the home or a flat which uh, contains a, a refrigerant that transfers the heat from the outside, even when it's it's cold outside, um, and it releases heat inside. And that's sort of you know seen as a, a key technology um, to be much more lower carbon because it uses electricity. And then the final thing, I suppose, to both of these is that lots of people are calling for what's known as a fabric first approach. And all that is, is just doing the insulation first, because insulation is the thing that's going to be, you know, lowering energy bills and, and making things more, more comfortable immediately. But one of the things that we're saying is, is ideally, you know, yes, fabric first, but ideally you do both of them at the same time. Um, to try and minimise the instances of disruption for the household. And also it decreases the risk that, you know, the, the insulation and the low carbon heating are potentially I- incompatible. So, uh, yes, a fabric first approach, but if you can, doing them at the same time. And that's, in a nutshell, I suppose, what, what we think retrofitting should should involve. I mean, it, it all sounds like it's, it's important and effective. It also sounds like just an enormous job. I was trying to think, is, is there any parallel for a project where changes are going to have to be made to pretty much every, every home, be it uh, authority or social housing or private uh, housing, every, every home in the country like that? Has, has that ever happened before? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's interesting because often when we're talking about you know, the need to kind of fundamentally change the way we're heating our homes, you know, there are historical examples. You know, we, we, we did this when we transitioned from from town gas to to, right. to gas itself, I think you know that that is a similar kind of what we're talking about here. We are we are talking about 
you know, there are 28 million homes in the UK and almost every single one of them is going to need to have some kind of low carbon heating. That doesn't necessarily mean they all have to have heat pumps, for example. The CCC, the Climate Change Committee, suggests that potentially up to 21 million homes would be having heat pumps. Five million would be having heat networks, which is essentially pumping uh, hot water through through, through, through pipes uh, into your home rather than having gas pipes and then a gas boiler. Uh, and then there will be some homes in kind of maybe regionally quite specific contexts that, that might have hydrogen boilers or, or other kinds of heating. But it is a, a massive undertaking. And in all of those homes, there's going to need to be um, consideration of what insulation is needed to make sure that, that, that heat pumps or other heating technologies work well with them. Um, it's worth saying that, you know, there is a massive undertaking, but there are you know substantial benefits to doing so. And obviously, I'm happy to kind of go into them in a bit more detail. Well, um, we, we should and we should also probably, uh, you know, everybody uh, listening to this will be will be aware of the role this has to play in, in tackling the climate crisis. But maybe um, it w- would be good just to spell out what a difference retrofitting could make in that context. Retrofitting from a from a climate perspective is you know is essential to meeting net zero targets. If you insulate your home to reduce your energy demand and then change to a heating system that uses electricity, that is the thing that's going to massively decrease emissions. But in a way, if you're looking at kind of the, the difference it will make to, to people's lives, we can almost for a moment you know pretend that climate change doesn't exist. Uh, you know, wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> we can just we can just put it out of our minds for a second. And the reason I said it is because the benefits of, of retrofitting are so substantial that even if there was no climate change, it would be worth doing. And there are, I suppose, four benefits that come to mind immediately. And so the first one is, you know, creating hundreds of thousands of jobs. You know, this is a massive scale of undertaking. So there was a recent Greenpeace study that kind of suggested about 138,000 net jobs across the economy by 2030. You know, substantial job creation figures that, that could be achieved from this. There's the potential for energy bill savings. So you might see quite a lot of talk about, oh, well, you know, heat pumps might add costs to my home because, you know, electricity is more expensive. Well, it, it is more expensive at the moment. But even if you just kind of combine insulation with, with heat pumps, then the, the, the bill savings could be quite substantial because heat pumps use a lot less energy than gas, uh, you know, than a gas boiler. So electricity prices are more expensive, but it uses a lot less of it, particularly if it's more um, insulated. The third thing is that you know there are more comfortable homes, warmer homes, more comfortable for people. It also has a wider economic benefit to the NHS by saving them money. You know, mouldy, cold, damp homes are associated with resp- respiratory and cardiovascular diseases, and that costs the NHS billions a year. So there's a big saving to be had there. And then the final thing is really kind of reducing dependency on on gas. And obviously, in light of recent gas price rises, that's a, a major issue at the moment. But many, many kind of low carbon heating solutions will. will well, we use electricity in increasingly renewable, domestically produced electricity, which means UK, UK households will be protected from, from those gas price rises more and more. And then you bring back in climate change and that sets out the timeline and that sets out the urgency by which we need to do all these things that we should be wanting to do anyway. And you recommend that this, this takes the form of government investment. I think you've just explained very clearly what we would get back from that investment. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about w- what the size of that investment is and, and you know, why it should uh, c- come from government, why it should be government leading on retrofitting? 
Yeah, absolutely. So at the moment, there is a quite a big investment gap. So there's been some analysis done by the um, Energy Efficiency Infrastructure Group, which suggests there's a there's a gap of about seven billion pounds investment into energy efficiency and just over four billion pounds investment into to heat pumps. So there's quite a substantial scale up in in, in investment uh, that's needed. And what when I say investment, what I mean by that is is largely helping with upfront costs of of energy efficiency insulation and, and, and heat pumps. Can, can you give us an idea of what an upfront cost tip? I know that houses are different, but typically. Yeah, so so the Climate Change Committee estimates suggest that it will be just under £10,000 per household on average. I think it's about two thirds of properties will have efficiency upgrades that cost £1,000 or less. And then they might need to explore a heating solution as well. But for some fuel bore homes, it'll be quite considerably more. For those homes that are going to need to have a lot more funding, you know, one of the things that we're recommending is those homes, those particularly those fuel bore homes, they need to have those full grants because of those costs that, that are mounting up. And and how common are those full grants? Because even at the lower end, you know, if if you start talking about numbers that that are more than hundreds of pounds, most people don't have thousands sitting around for this does it have to come from the government in in the form of grants is that the only way to really get this done yeah so so it's interesting a lot of the industry stakeholders that we've been speaking to have been saying you know at at the very least in the first say five years of any kind of scheme like this there needs to be public funding uh, to kind of kickstart the market i think that there is consideration of you know how private financing might step in but really a lot of this is going to need to be delivered by by public funding uh, to kind of to get people interested. And I suppose it's worth saying, you know, that, that obviously we've talked a lot about investment and, and the kind of the cash that's needed, but there are also plenty of other kind of elements to this that are needed. So there's the standards that are needed, the regulation in place that will kind of set 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 the market uh, going. So that's you know increasing energy efficiency ratings to a certain level. Um, by by a certain date, and then similar to to how we to be to be phasing out the sale of uh, petrol and diesel cars, that's going kind to of banning the sale of gas boilers. It's also really crucial to be ramping up industry capacities to kind of setting out a long term plan. In some sense, will help to kind of drive demand to train up the workforce. But there also needs to be you know financial support to help with training costs, commitments to kind of good quality job standards to make sure that you know the industry is actually attractive uh, for people to move into. There's going to need to be kind of massive kind of communication uh, and sort of national advertising campaigns and, and energy advice services. And then I suppose the final thing as well is 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 capacity for actually local councils to del- deliver a lot of this. So you know, having better data sharing, for example, to be able to identify which homes in their wards are going to need to be prioritised because they are the, you know, the leakiest homes. I want to come on to what the government is doing, isn't doing. Before we do that, how, how can government nudge people, talk about homeowners really, in, into this? So replacing a, a boiler or a heating system, I kind of understand that you could get to a point where you would only be able to replace it with a much more efficient heating system. But with, with something like insulation, you, you can't make people insulate their houses. I mean... Maybe you you could get to a point where you couldn't sell on a house that didn't uh, that wasn't insulated to the right standard. What's the way in getting people to sign up for this? So I think that that's sort of where, if you like, two of the 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 five components come into play. So probably standards is is, is definitely one. So that's kind of one that you you mentioned there, which is you know introducing standards that sort of say that you wouldn't be able to. By, by a certain date, say, and one of the things that we're considering is 2030 as a, as a date, you know, you wouldn't be able to sell 
uh, your home if it wasn't a certain level of energy efficiency or you know potentially setting a slightly earlier date for, for the private rented sector um, where you couldn't rent a property if it wasn't a kind of certain level of energy efficiency but then also you know incomes the communication aspect of it which is kind of really um, advertising you know the importance of of doing this the attractiveness of doing so from a, from a kind of a perspective of having kind of warmer comfortable homes and actually insulation is you know is the key thing which is going to help to reduce energy bills as well then you add back in you know the the, the cash element the support for all of this but i think fundamentally you, you kind of need all of these these pieces in place the communications the the, the standards and the, the cash as well talk to us about social housing how how does that fit into this agenda Sure. I mean, social homes are, are really interesting because in general, they tend to already have better levels of, of energy efficiency than some other tenures. A big part of that was, you know, is that social landlords kind of have an obligation to, to, to provide that for, for their tenants. They show that what can be done uh, to, for, for, from, from other homes perspectives. But what it also means is that we can be more ambitious with, with social homes and we can demonstrate uh, learnings for, for other tenures. Um, and it can also uh, you know, because social homes have have landlords that are kind of conscious and making things more comfortable for their home for their, for their tenants, we can also be trialing things like um, what's known as the passive house approach, which is a really comprehensive look at that the entire home and, and kind of if you like making sure that there's there's very little heat that can can escape uh, at all, uh, and that's a much more kind of comprehensive approach than just putting in a bit of insulation. But the reason why that's really good is that if you kind of trial that and kind of scale that up in social homes, it can help to develop the supply chains for uh, other tenures as well. Um, and as I say, because uh, social landlords are, are more uh, likely to do that, that, that can be a really beneficial space to, to do that. And just to sort of ask you a slightly leading question, how's the government doing on this agenda? Yeah, so I think that there's, there's mixed results, but there's a long way to go. So you know, the Green Homes Grant obviously was scuppered. Maybe you should explain that to, to what it was, the Green Homes Grant to people. So the Green Homes Grant was essentially a, a scheme which was offering um, up to £5,000 for uh, energy efficiency and low carbon heating, and then up to £10,000 for, for lower income homes. And, you know, it, it was something that was actually very popular in the sense that demand was very high, but it was administered really poorly. There was uh, far too short a timeline to design it, and it only was intended to last a year or so, which meant that lots of industry players kind of just just either weren't interested in it or uh, didn't have the time to ramp up the capacity to to, to get the right number of installers. The, but the, the principle of that it was was good. Uh, so we need to kind of preserve the idea of, of of providing grants for people, but it needs to be designed a lot better. In terms of the, the the scale of the challenge, if you like, there's a lot more for the government to do. So, you know, we installed around 36,000 heat pumps in 2020. By 28, we need to be selling 600,000. You know, that's not the, the the total number. That's the annual number. So we need to be increasing that 36,000 year on year, you know, to, to be in line with meeting net zero targets and kind of get up to that trajectory of, of 600,000 heat pumps by uh, 2028 we need to be between now and 2022 we need to be quadrupling the number of heat pump sales we need to be increasing cavity wall insulation sales by 77 percent, and then more than doubling the loft and solid wall insulation sales that, that we're making in, in this year and of course we're talking a lot about retrofitting homes but there's the issue of new homes and the standards to which they're built and it's worth saying isn't it that the labor government had a zero carbon home standard so all homes would have been built to zero carbon standard in 2016 it was due to come in and it was got rid of and we've had nearly a million homes built 
not to that standard, so in other words, high carbon. Just talk to us about that, if you would. Yeah, absolutely. So until there is a uh, a future home standard, which is, if you like, the latest iteration of, of that, which is which is due to come in by twenty twenty five now, and as you say, it's been it's been it, used, it was going to come in in twenty fifteen twenty sixteen, but it's it's been delayed. Until that happens, we are knowingly building homes that are going to need to be retrofitted in future. So. That's a really kind of key area that we need to be grappling with because it will just make our lives so much more difficult in future. It will make people's lives difficult as well because it will be knowingly passing on the costs to them as well. Well, listen, Josh Emden from uh, IPPR, that's a really helpful summary of of, uh, some of the things that could be being done. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. How do we get people to do this? How easy is it for you to do this? We're going to speak now to Anika Kelly, who works in the retrofit team at Carbon Co-op in Manchester. Hello, Anika. Hi, Jeff. First off, let's, let me just start by saying, uh, tell, tell us about Carbon Co-op. Just lay out uh, what it is and what you do there. Carbon Co-op, we're a cooperative based up in Manchester. We've been around for over 10 years. Our sort of raison d'etre is supporting people to come together and take practical action on climate change. And sort of about nine years ago, we decided to really focus that on housing. So over the years, we've really developed our expertise. We've been working with householders in Greater Manchester and beyond to support them to really understand what can be done in terms of the emissions they can save from their homes, what they could do in terms of retrofit and reducing them and retaking that kind of fabric first approach. If, if I'd heard about Carbon Co-op from someone or, or through the different marketing outreach you do, what, what do I do? I, I call you up and I say, listen, I've been thinking my house probably isn't that great. I've been thinking about the climate crisis. I don't know where to start. Can you help me? Is, is that sort of a typical yeah, it's very typical. point of contact? <laughs> right. So, so then, th- then where do you take it from there then? Our approach up until about three years ago was to um, support people to understand the issue, understand the complexity around retrofit, the risks, the importance of doing good quality works well. So we used to do lots of householder-based workshops and then this whole house assessment. So it'd be sort of two hours where a trained assessor would come around make a really in-depth assessment in terms of talking to the household about what they actually want, what their renovation plans, making it sort of work for them and produce a report as kind of a 40-page report. And we found that whilst that was useful, a lot of people still stalled their projects because they're like, well, I don't know exactly what to do first. I need some more support. I can't find a contractor. I don't know if my contractor is the right one. I'm not sure if it's being installed well. You've suddenly told me about all the risks. Now I'm really worried. And we sort of realised that actually people need more support than that. So we got some funding from Bayes, the government department, about three years ago to look at building a sort of local market for retrofit. And what we've done is created an end-to-end householder service called People Powered Retrofit. Now we provide support right through the whole process. So someone might come up and be like, I really want to do something with my house, I'm not quite sure. We sort of have a half an hour conversation, get a sense of what they're thinking you know, what their timeframes are like, how serious they are, and then sign point them to support, sort of help them design a brief, help them get design support, and then help them find contractors. And at the same time, we're supporting bringing new builders and plumbers and architects and consultants into this, sort of supporting them to skill up and meet the demand of householders that we've got. So then we support in the on-site phase, sort of when people are sort of doing the building works, it's quality assurance and then evaluation handover. So it's been quite exciting, really, to sort of grow what wow. we do. So that sounds brilliant. So so I could call you up and say, listen, I, I live in a drafty terraced house with a, a gas boiler. You could tell me what I could do. 
the order in which to, I could do it in, you can then tell me who could do it so I could feel confident that I was hiring trustworthy people who know about this stuff and you're helping people in those trades transition to a greener way of working. Yeah, and supporting them with on-site training too. So or you might have a builder that you trust and think is, you know, you want to work with who's done your extension, for example, that we could go, well, actually, if you want to work with them, if they're interested in working with us, we're up for doing some training. Because I think that's how, in terms of the bigger picture of change in the construction industry, we really see it as a sort of bottom-up working with local builders to sort of skill up and understand this area and really feel confident to work in it. I guess 15 years ago, if if someone was thinking about doing this stuff, that person was probably a, a somewhat committed environmentalist who is way ahead of, of where yeah. the average homeowner would be. How how much has that changed? Who's the typical person that you hear, for, hear from? That was actually one of our reasons to sort of do a more in-depth support because we found, you know, our membership, who are mostly have been committed environmentalists with a bit of money behind them, were the people kind of pioneering retrofit and really going through very long periods of time working, becoming experts themselves to work out how to do it. We sort of realised that to mainstream this, that isn't, we can't rely on that, which is why we sort of felt that having independent householder advice so people don't need to become experts themselves is important. We uh, we were talking to Josh from the IPPR before about what the government can do. Do, do you want to talk about to us a little bit about your approach and, and why you think this people-powered or bottom-up approach to retrofitting homes is is so powerful we need to sort of mainstream retrofit as the way that we do buildings in this country into the future and the way that people currently engage with their buildings and their homes are to refurbish them over years and who do people use when they do that they go to their local builder you know so i think going along with how people already work and sort of supporting that to include retrofit it's it's powerful because it's already happening and it's just kind of supporting that to happen in a more environmental way i think if we have like a kind of top down right we're going to put external wall insulation on all of these buildings i mean that possibly if those programs are done well that'll work but it has to take a whole house approach and then when you're working with individuals you can't really go right we're going to do this to your home because someone's going to say oh i don't want you to do that to my home you know, they're going to say, well, I, I want to do this to my home. So it's kind of working with what people want is really important. I, I forgot to say, people retrofit. We've had so much demand that we've decided to expand and we're releasing a community share issue um, to really grow our service. So if anyone's interested, they can invest for £250. So I wanted to ask you about this. So you, you've already raised a significant amount of investments yeah. at two hundred thousand, more than two hundred thousand pounds, I think. And and this is this project, the people powered retrofit. So 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 what what is this? Uh, what are these shares that you've issued? Can you tell us a bit more about it and like what the idea is and what your ambitions and plans are for it? The work that we've been doing, people powered retrofit, has been sort of it was piloted through Bayes funding, and we found it incredibly successful and. We've got a huge waiting list of people who want to access the service. And so we thought, well, to expand this, we're going to create a sort of another community benefit society, separate it out from Carbon Co-op and, and ask people to invest in the business. And what will it do for you? It will mean that we can hire more staff to really meet demand. Because um, at the moment we have had to put a pause on sort of assessments and taking on new inquiries just because we're, we're sort of dealing with the ones that we've got at the moment. Um. So we've been talking about homeowners. Uh, is, is 
is there anything if you're living in social housing, local authority housing, are you, are you just sort of at the whim of your councillor, or is there anything you can do to make a retrofit scheme happen? Yeah, so I've been thinking about this a lot over the last couple of years. Um, I really noticed the inequality, to be honest, around lots of our membership who are mostly able to pay homeowners and they've got a lot of agency and choice over how they improve their homes. And a lot of funded schemes have taken place over the last, you know, 10 years. And quite often those schemes are done to people rather than with them. And there's been problems with those schemes um, for various reasons and it is complex. But I've been sort of doing a research project looking at, well, what about taking a people-centred approach to energy efficiency schemes? And what have you learned about what that what that could look like and how it could work? Well, it means resourcing that work well. So it looks like, you know, involving people in the design process if they want to be involved or making that accessible to them. It kind of involves being, I think, being aware of people's needs at lots of different stages and sort of in terms of communication a lot a lot of times it's sort of here's a flyer sign on the dotted line brilliant we've got you it's kind of actually you know how do those people actually understand what's on offer have you explained it in person I think it's particularly in terms of what it looks like at the sort of construction phase Customer service is a massive problem I think and like people miss appointments you know well at, at the survey stage and at the construction phase. So they say we'll be here this morning and they and never then turn they up. And then they don't turn stuff, up. Right? And then people get really annoyed. And obviously, and things take, you know, months and months to sort out. Like anyone would expect good customer service. It's kind of, unfortunately, there's this attitude that, oh, you're getting it for free. So, you know, we're just not going to treat you well. And I just think that's classist, if I could use that word. You know, it's I think it's pretty bad. When you've looked into it, have you have you seen anywhere? Is there anywhere that sticks out? You know, like an, a, a real example, a real place yeah. where you think actually they've done a really good job of it. Yeah, definitely. Um, there's a brilliant report written by some um, academics in LSE called Retrofit to the Rescue, and it's all about Portsmouth City Council who decided to self-fund um, an NFIT standard, so it's a really high standard of retrofit of their tower blocks council tower blocks um, and they took resident engagement really seriously before the design phase they held open days that people could go into pilot flats they had access to the whole design team they could say you know oh actually we've just enclosed all our balconies that's where I do my washing and they've kind of had to change the plans to take an account of people want to you know wash their clothes somewhere and you know they actually meaningfully did that and even though the construction phase was really tough and they still had problems of missed appointments there was a lot of goodwill for the project from the residents overall. And I know the, the team in Portsmouth really worked hard to make that work for people. Well, that, that's fantastic. And, and, you know, the work you're doing at Carbon Corp sounds amazing. I would recommend homeowners in Manchester get in touch with you, but it sounds like you've got your plate full at the moment. But the thing that listeners can do if they want to support you in, in what you're doing is get involved with the with the investment, which sounds like a fantastic thing. And also we've got loads and loads of webinars that we've done that are all free to access for anyone on lots of issues and technical issues. Fantastic. Well, uh, Anika Kelly, thank you so much. That's uh, Anika from the Carbon Co-op in Manchester. What do you think? I found it incredibly interesting. Before we had the conversations i was a little bit worried about the the size of it the scale of it yeah um but actually think thinking that just hooking people up to 
the the gas or the the electric or the plumbing happened in the past. I think just that I was my mind was quite blown about the fact that it would affect pretty much every home in the country. And would that be unlike anything we've seen before? And, and there are some parallels. I was also just really encouraged by how much further the public are along with it. And there's this will to, to have it done and, and people are con- considering it. And I was really interested in what Josh had to say in, in that actually you can think about the climate aspect of it last. There are all these other advantages to sell it to people before you even get onto climate. I think I think you're right. And I think I think it seems to me that of all the green quote unquote things you could do, this insulation retrofit thing is like the biggest no brainer because it's like, you know, we've got an international gas crisis and which is playing out particularly in the UK because we're, we're pretty we're very very vulnerable. The best way of managing energy demand is to reduce it, not by telling people to turn off their heat, but by you know insulating homes. I mean, the first instance. Um, and we're really rubbish on this as a country. We're just way behind. And you know, so it, it lowers people's bills. It helps make us more energy secure. It lowers carbon emissions, and it could create lots of jobs. I think there is a sort of I mean, I know it's a bit of a cliche, low-hanging fruit. I don't want to sound like somebody from the office. But, you know, um, I, I do think that this, this is low-hanging fruit. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at Cheerful Podcast. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. And for our cheerful person this week, we're joined by co-artistic director of Lung Theatre and writer and director of Who Cares? It's Matt Woodhead. Hello. Hello. Thank you so Hello. much for having me. Thanks for coming well, thank on. Thank you for coming on. And um, you, you, uh, you, you're the second director of Lung Theatre that we've had on the podcast because Helen Monks was on. We were thinking that about 200 episodes <laughs> or so. 200 years ago. For anyone who wasn't with us 200 episodes ago, and I think we did sort of cover it with Helen, she was there to talk about other stuff. What is Lung Theatre? Lung are a um, campaign um, verbatim-led theatre company. So um, we, we kind of like make work that are based on stories and voices that we believe need to be amplified. And um, we work really closely with that group. Um, the words that they say in interviews then form the basis of the show. So it could be anything from like, we've done plays with like football fans in Bradford to like 29 um, single mums um, taking on Noon Council to um, Trojan Horse um, and looking and working with the teachers and governors that were at the heart of um, the Trojan Horse scandal. Um, and then, yeah, kind of like banging a big old drum is basically what we do. And who, who are you banging the big old drum for with Who Cares then? Because this, this is an interesting story. Who Cares is a, oh, it's a, it's a course that's really, really close to my heart. It's um, a play that we've been doing since 2016. And it's a story of a group of young carers, um, four incredible young carers in Salford, um, Kerry, Antonia Ray, Paige and Kieran. And um, they're part of like a hidden army of young carers. So there's an estimated 800,000 young carers in the UK, according to Carers Trust. 
And these are four young people who, you know, day in, day out have been caring for a loved one. Um, and a young carer is basically, you know, a young person who cares for a family member. And that could be like, um, or a sibling or a relative. It could be because of a disability, a physical disability, mental health illness or um, drug or alcohol addiction. I met these young people um, five years ago now and um, was just absolutely blown away by their tenacity and kind of vigour and desire to find more young carers and get them support. And as you've turned that into a play, have, have they followed that story? They've been and seen it. What, what do they think of what you've done with their words and their stories? It's been it's been incredible. Well, they've, they've, they've kind of been involved in like all kind of aspects of the production. So it's been done with the Lowry Theatre and um, Gadam, who support young carers in Salford. And um, the young people have been involved in like casting the show. So they were casting directors. All of their favourite songs are in there. Like, and originally, you know, as a grown up, you, you kind of go, oh, what, oh my gosh, like we're just going to give autonomy to these young people. And um, we absolutely have done and they've absolutely run with it. And I think part of the success of the production is that like they've kind of really been in the driving seat of it. It's been amazing to watch them kind of and slightly like existential to watch them grow with the show as well. So Kieran, one of the young people, got a scholarship to go and do political science at Aberystwyth. Um, like wow. one of the other young people has now got a full time job at the Lowry working in their engagement department. Someone else is just about to go off to uni as well. So it's been incredible to watch them to watch them grow as the show has also grown as well. And and you're going around the country, is that right? Uh, 15 venues across the UK this autumn. To, to, and, but I think you're also going into schools as well. Talk, talk to us about this. A huge kind of thing about young carers is that, like, yes, there's 800, an estimated 800,000 in the UK, but a huge amount of them are unidentified. So a lot of them are clearing, like, behind closed doors without any support. So... There's kind of every single local authority has a statutory responsibility to provide a local young carer service. So what we've been doing is like in all of the areas that we've been touring to, we've been going into schools. Our fantastic engagement manager, Madiha Ansari, has been delivering like a pre-show workshop that kind of looks at like what is a young carer. And then the young people will then be invited to come and see the performance and have a cool down in the space. And then we go back into those schools to look at pledge making. And I think it's kind of like working grassroots with schools with students there and also teachers as well to start making pledges about the really kind of small simple things that schools can do to actually like support young carers already we've been going for we've been touring this version of the show for about two weeks we've already reached about 600 like 600 young people and already like we're starting to identify more hidden young carers and signpost them to support and how do you reach them Matt through the process of the play what's the process by which you get to them a main part of it is like seeing the stories of the young of the young people. Like um, one of them, um, the character we've kind of is called the character. The pseudonym is called Jade, and Jade was a carer for her dad when he came off his motorbike, and she's also a sibling carer for her brother, um, who um, has um, hearing difficulties. Another young carer care, whose story is featured in the play um, supports their mum who has mental health um, illness and deals with addiction. And I think actually. You, you can kind of talk about it till the cows come home and you can kind of like, you know, put on your skinny jeans and do a little bit of a PowerPoint presentation for kids. But actually, like the thing that resonates with them the most is actually seeing the production and seeing parts of their story reflected back at them. And then they go, oh, my gosh, I'm a young carer. And then, you know, we kind of wheel out then a member of the young carer service and then say, well, have you have you spoken to Pam? Pam can sort you out. <laughs> you, you performed Who Cares in the House of Lords. Is that right? Yeah, we did, yeah. And how did that go? Were any of them awake? Jeff? 
Uh, don't play into stereotypes. How did it go, Matt? It was amazing. Like, um, it was really surreal. So the young people went and did speeches, and it was incredible. Like, um, behind where the way that it was performed, the stage, like, then looked out, and on behind the cast and the young people as they were speaking, they were actually voting. Like, lords and MPs who came would kind of leave and maybe come back. And um, for me, it was kind of like a bit of a moment where you you were seeing kind of people speak about real life, and then those. The decisions, you know, either I think it was like some, it was a vote on universal credit that was happening that day, um, and then you had politicians going and voting on these real issues that you know are mentioned in the play and really affect these young people. So it was an incredible day, and it was a real celebration of those young people. But for me, it was in particular kind of like a bit of a stark reminder of actually the the, the power the power of Westminster, but also the power of these young people to affect change as well. Like they definitely gave everyone a big kick up the arse. Like there was no um, there were no sleeping lords there by the end of that performance but more than anything it was just an incredible experience for me to see these like you know four incredible young people from Salford just on the banks of the River Thames in Parliament like advocating for the rights of other young carers and I think like that's for me that's something that really drives us and gives us fire with this project which is you've got these four young people who have in some cases you know quite challenging quite challenging things that they have to balance like school home life drama of being a teenager you know also caring for a loved one day in day out and you had these four young people who were actually advocating for the rights of other young carers and that's something that in particular stuck with me. And the thing is Matt you're not just uh, providing testimony of young carers through your work, but you're also a- advocating certain directions of policy. So tell us about those. Yeah, because like outside of the play, like we've launched something called the Who Cares campaign. So over lockdown, we've been doing a lot of advocacy work. So a lot of the young carers that we work with in Salford have been on and BBC News. Um, we got Hugh Edwards to say the Who Cares campaign. So I did like a little bit of a cry and a mini sick when he did that because it was beautiful. Um, but like um, we've been doing things like raising money for young carers who've been facing digital poverty over lockdown. And so getting them laptops and phones and things to kind of make sure they can catch up on education. But also we've launched a working policy group. So in Salford, we've been working with um, people from like local clinical commissioning groups, people from um, like the local youth carer service, lawyers, um, all of that kind, all of those kind of professionals, you know, like actual grown-ups, you know, grown-ups, and then you go, oh my gosh, I'm just a child and you're a grown-up. We've been working with lots of grown-ups um, and we've been drafting like a series of policies that we're hoping to implement in Salford this autumn. So we've got um, in schools, for example, we're looking at recommending that there's a designated young carers lead in each in each school. Um, policies for local authorities include this idea of a young carer's passport. So if a young carer um, is identified and known to a service, they can get a card that will make them eligible for, you know, little things that just make life easier, like being able to show your ID card to a pharmacist so they know that you can then pick up your parents' prescription or um, you can kind of show it to get a discount on some on food and, you know, the necessities that you need to care for, to care for a loved one. And we've also, the kind of final group that we're looking at um, it's just like, um, yeah, health agencies and stuff as well. I think like over over the lockdown, like young carers have found that, you know, carers just have reported that 40% of young carers have said that their mental health is worse since the pandemic began. But I say all of this with like, these are the things that can happen if a young carer is unsupported and like, 
there's a huge amount of positive things that can come from being a young carer as well. Like young carers that we work with say like, oh my gosh, like, you know, like I can cook, I can clean, like I can like pay the, I can pay the bills. Like how many, like I can do the laundry, like how many, um, how many like adults and grown-ups can say that? Um, and I think as well, like the resounding thing that we're doing with all of these policies is saying like, there is actually a huge amount of things that we can do to support, to support them. And um, yeah, it's just about as society, just like making sure that every young carer isn't on their own when they're caring for a loved one. Well, look, it's incredibly inspiring, Matt, what you're doing. People can see where you're going on tour uh, this autumn by going to your website really congratulations from us for for what you're doing thanks so much for joining us oh my gosh thank you so much for um for having me you're all absolute babes thank you but it it wasn't a cry in a mini sick situation (laughs) there was no cry and there's no mini sick during the recording of this podcast i can confirm reasons to be cheerful with ed Miliband and jeff lloyd well we're in the outro we are how is your quest going my quest to find out who you were on a date with in November 1997. I haven't heard... I was hoping for some listener feedback, but no. I'm sorry to hear that. Whenever anything vaguely interesting, strange, funny, embarrassing happens, I just think... It's just, it's just, look, it's just good material. Maybe a podcast is good for people's state of mind, because instead of something terrible, some disaster unfolding, some uh, embarrassing incident, it, instead of just being mortified by it, you can straight away compartmentalise it and think, oh, I can use that for a podcast. Exactly. How's that going for you? It's a work in progress. Uh, should we thank our guests? We should. Josh Emden and Anika Kelly. And, of course, Matt Woodhead. Wasn't he brilliant? Uh, Emma Corsham produces our podcast. She gets it sounding so professional every week, how she manages it. Despite my best efforts. <laughs> uh, Joel Pierce finds all our guests, does all the research. Uh, he is the architect of all this, and uh, he's supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made our idents. Ed Seed composed the music, and the artwork was designed by Henry Cole. He's lost the adulterer vote. He never had it. And these have been reasons to be cheerful. Mm-hmm.